Hi there, welcome to an episode of an Inside View podcast in association with On The Ball Team Building. I'm your host, Jamie Finn. If this is your first time listening, please do go back to episode one and have a listen. If you haven't done so already, please do click subscribe. There is a business or sports person in each of us, and we hope that our guest stories will help our listeners to chase their dreams. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 10 of series 4 of an Inside View podcast with On The Ball Team Building. Special mention to Sport Endorse who are sponsors for this series. They're an online sports sponsorship platform that connects athletes with companies all around the world. The Irish-owned online marketplace has over 4,000 athletes. For more information, be sure to check out the Sports Endorse website. Also, a special mention to the Shire Baron Cafe in Killarney who are also supporting the podcast for this series. Dubai Duty Free's Executive Vice Chairman and CEO Colm McLaughlin is our guest on this week's podcast. Colm has been with the organisation since its inception in 1983 and will be celebrating 40 years with Dubai Duty Free later this year. It is now a multi-million dollar business and has won over 700 awards to date. Colm has won over 80 personal awards. There is no doubt we have a huge amount to cover, so let's bring him on. Hi Colm, thanks for taking time out to come on an Inside View podcast, I appreciate it because you're, you're a very busy person. How are you keeping, how is everything? You're very welcome Jamie, everything is great, couldn't have no complaints whatsoever, I'm keeping okay and um, I'm very happy with our duty free and the other bits and pieces we have are doing. Brilliant, you're after a busy couple of weeks with the tennis, um, how was that, was it a success as, as always? The tennis was very good. And we had 17 of the top 20 ranked ladies in the world participate. We had eight of the top 20 men participate. And it's the 31st year we have been doing the men's tennis and the ladies' tennis we joined seven years later. And it was fantastic. We had 90,000 spectators over the two weeks. And as, as I said on that evening, I never lose an opportunity to mention we were the first tournament in the world to give equal prize money to the ladies, and we have continued that ever since. Brilliant, brilliant. Jeez, that was, uh, before your time, so obviously that's only that's become more and more evident now um, in competitions. But that's uh, that's remarkable. What I like to do with guests is kind of delve under the bonnet and go back to you know their early days um, and what their upbringing was like. So. You, you grew up in, in Ballinasloe or around that area? In Ballinasloe in County Galway, yeah. What was it like? Well, that time. <laughs> what was your upbringing like? Was it that? That's a while ago. Uh, no, we were very enjoyable. We, I had two brothers and two sisters. And um, we all lived together in the same house which mum and dad had built when they got married in 1938. Um, and we did all the usual things. We walked to school. It was about maybe a mile and a quarter. And then when we got sophisticated, we got a bicycle and we cycled to school. And, um, you know, we did all the usual things. We played hurling and we played handball and we played bits of tennis. And, um, and in the, when the season was on, we went to the bog and cut the turf and had the peat ready for the fire for the winter. Um, I'd say we had a very enjoyable togetherness during our childhood, you know. Looking back on it now, um, 
what values do you think you you learned from from that time? I think we were taught by my mum and dad to behave properly. We were taught not to use many swear words, you know. We were taught to mind each other, to work each other, to work with each other, to stop fighting and stuff like that. And then, and we all in turn learned how to do different things. We had quite a big garden, and it was our job to plant the lettuce and plant the cabbage and weed the garden. And I remember one of the first things I did, probably when I was 12 years of age, I used to sow lettuce. And then um, I got sixpence ahead when I sold them into the into one of the shops in Banlasloe. So it was good. Brilliant, brilliant. Started from a very, very young age, learning the... Young age, yeah. Learn, learning the, those skills. And I remember when I bought my first bicycle, it was um, a bank load of turf, which my dad had cut. I saved it and uh, until it was dry, and then my dad sold a lorry load of turf, and I got the money to buy a bicycle, and it was £11. Whoa. In those days. I remember that way. Oh, oh. So, it, it's funny you touched on the bicycle there because I believe um, a bicycle was uh, an important aspect of your life in London as well. When you went to London, you uh, used to be cycling around London. Is, is, that, is that story true? That's story true. Yeah, I've been through a number of things in London and then I joined Woolworths as a training manager. And I was assigned to the Woolworths in Oxford Street in London, which was the biggest Woolworths in the UK at that time. There was a parking space underground for the general manager and deputy general manager. And I lived in Acton, which was seven miles from Oxford Street. And on a Friday evening after work, a few of us from, from the stockroom used to go to the bar and have a beer. And uh, somebody stole my wallet, and I had no money for my bus tickets, which for the week were 18 shillings, I remember clearly. And I had an old bicycle, which I'd bought some time before that from a policeman for 30 shillings. And then because my wallet was stolen, I cycled to Woolworths every morning and back every evening. It was six to seven miles. Um, Hail, rain or snow, it had to happen. And the funny ending to that story was, I used to put my bicycle in the underground car park between the car of the general manager and deputy general manager. And um, seven years later, when you, were, when you joined Woolworths, you were assigned to different stores to learn different things. And, and I went to six or eight different stores around the place. But seven years after that time, I was promoted back as the Deputy General Manager of Woolworths in Oxford Street, and I put my came in my little car for one of the backward stations. Oh. <laughs> it's amazing how well it progresses like that. And um, I find it very interesting that this this period of your, of your life, then where you were home for a, a summer or a holiday, and you saw an ad in the paper for um, a duty free job in Shannon. Why did you decide to, to change career and and go for that? Well, um, I was in the retail business. I saw the job advertised in Shannon at the Duty Free. I had no idea what it meant. And um, I went for an interview there, and I was offered a job there. So I decided to retire from Woolworths and go back to Ireland. It was really, it was really to go back home. Uh, but it was the influencing thing. Um, and uh, I never regretted a day of it, to be honest. But um, 
position. And you're, you know, you're, you're, you're a guru, you have extreme knowledge now in the area of, of duty-free, but um, I, you know, we all have to start off somewhere. What was it like the first couple of years in, in the duty-free uh, industry? Oh, I enjoyed it, and I was just learning new stuff. You know, I had been, as I say, in the retail business, so to a certain extent I understood that thing between the retailer and the customer and the range of product and stuff like that. But of course, joining something like the Duty Free, I had to learn a whole lot of new things. I started seeing names of perfume houses I never knew existed and things like that. Um, and there was a man in charge of the Duty Free in Shen at the time called Bill Maloney. And um, he was one of the really fo founders of the Duty Free industry. He was there since very early on. And um, he had worked in a department and store in Dublin. And um, I was his deputy at the beginning, and I learned from him whatever I could. And he was very helpful and uh, very, you know, he has since passed away, but he was very helpful to teach people what to do. It taught me a lot of how to deal with people, how to, how to um, make judgments on people, how to treat staff and all that sort of thing. And I found it very important. Uh, those two aspects there, about judgment on people and, and uh, you know, treating staff. What have you learned throughout the years? Because the, the, the business here is, is phenomenal. What has grown to duty-free uh, business here in Dubai? Um, so you obviously have come across a lot of people and been in a lot of boardrooms. What do you think is, is the key when you're, when you're deciding on situations? Well, I think you have to respect staff because although they may be more junior than you, it's their contribution altogether that makes a company successful or not. And we have a very strong um, system, if you like to call it that, or attitude to our staff in Dubai duty-free. We see every single level as important. We introduced into the duty-free in Dubai. Um, we have not recruited a senior person from outside for 25 years. And all our duty managers and night managers and senior supervisors are all people that got promoted internally, that maybe joined as a storeman or joined as a salesperson. And then we have a training department in Dubai Duty Free. They were trained inside. And when an opportunity came, they were promoted. So going back to the early days, it taught me very much the equality of people. It taught me very much that uh, you're not always right. It taught me very much that you get great ideas from people, although they're, um, they're junior to you, and to, to take account of that and use it. Do you think having respect and, and treating people, you know, the way you would want it been treated in, in those stages is kind of dates back to your, your rural upbringing and your upbringing in, 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 uh, in Galway? I think so, yeah. I think it was the attitude in my family and it was the attitude of my mother and father. Um, and my father all his life, he didn't ask me this, my father was born in 1906, which at that time in the schools in Ireland, Irish was not spoken or taught. And when he was about 18, he went to London for four years, spent four years working in London and came back to Ireland as a, a very, very good Irish speaker and spent the rest of his life promoting Irish things. He um, used to teach children how to speak Irish. 
when he was 91 years of age, he was treating, uh, teaching children how to do step dancing. Um, and did several things like that over his, over his life, you know. And um, in Ireland, at some time, the, the streets were named in dual languages. And I always remember Bellinasloe, where I come from, and the Irish is Bailohanaslua. It was the first town in Ireland to have the signs in dual language, which was organized by my father and paid for by my father. Then it became an efficient thing, of course, around the country. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. That's amazing. That's just a story in passing. Do you still, would you be good at Irish or was the was language is not really? Well, I can speak Irish, um, but you would very rarely use it nowadays. You might be saying something maybe to your brother when he's visiting or something and you don't want someone to understand it. You'd say a few words in Irish. A couple of this a... And, and the thing of language is I regret every minute of my life now that I didn't learn how to speak Arabic when I came here and I've been here 40 years, you know. And did you, did you, did you try to, to learn Arabic when you came here? I didn't, and I'm sorry I didn't because I never thought when I came here that I was going to be sitting here when I was nearly 100. <laughs> I did, did, I, just to kind of take a step back for a moment. Sure. You, you spent 14 years in... In Shannon, wasn't it? That's correct. Yeah, I went there on first of June, nineteen sixty-nine. It must have been difficult that you know in that situation, you must you know you could have just stayed there and and you know retired there. You know you would have been well settled in there at the time, but you decided to to take the step and uh, come over to Dubai. Like you must have seen crazy changes in in Dubai since you stepped off the the plane. Oh, did you? The you know when I first came to Dubai and came as part of a team of 10 people from Airinta, who are an Irish company that run the airports. It was a contract between the Dubai government, the airport here, and Airinta in Ireland. It was just for six months. And it was during that six months that I was asked if I would consider staying here. And um, I considered it and I spoke to Breda about it and um, we decided yes, but even that time, although I was coming here, it was seen as short term, you know? And like the initial talk of a contract here, um, the man in charge of the airport here at that time was a man called Mohidin Ben Hindi. It was he who suggested to me that I might stay. He brought me to see Sheikh Mohammed, who was the Minister for Defence that time. And um, the whole discussion was a two year contract. And uh, that's been extended a bit over the years. Um, so when I came first, I had, you know, no intention of being here, but what I described was the rest of my life. When you came initially, did you, was there challenges with, with, uh, with the language um, and even perhaps with the, with the Irish accent? Uh, no, you know, the Irish accent is sometimes criticized, but I've never tried to change it. I'm very happy about it. I'm very proud to be Irish. Um, there wasn't. You'd find things. I went to the Philippines to interview people, and you would sometimes have difficulty there being understood, but you would also have difficulty understanding um, interviews in India, Pakistan, places like that. And many, many nationalities that we interviewed here locally, um, but generally, no serious difficulties. But I suppose that's where the, the team you have around you then comes into play, and they're able to you know, to, to help you in the which way. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, it has grown, of course, but we now have 49 
different nationalities working for us. Some big numbers, some small numbers. The biggest number of, of uh, any single nationality is Filipino. And how do you, from a managerial perspective, how do you ensure that these nationalities just don't stick to themselves within such a big country? How do you ensure that there's cross-nationality communication? Well, it just happens naturally, you know. Um, but in every every part of our business, there's a mixture of nationalities. You know, as I said, the biggest number of people we have are Filipino. But they're not all sales people. Some work in the stores, some work in accounts, some work in, in HR, some work in sales and marketing and so on. Um, it has not been a problem that we have cliques. It hasn't been. Um, you know, we have a thing in the Jersey Free called the Nightingales, and they're, they're a singing group. And um, they're a mixture of people. There's some Indian, Pakistani, Filipino, all working together. And we've never found a difficulty. We've never found it a problem in the Jersey Free. The, um, you know, to get on, all get on we're together. And um, all the social things that our staff do are all done jointly. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. So when you, you know, what, what do you think, looking back now, what do you think helped you progress and grow, grow this, this duty-free here in the early days? You know, when I suppose the knowledge of the Middle East wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been there. Um, well, we knew a little bit, of course, from our 14 years about the duty-free business. Um, we learned the importance of customer satisfaction. We learned the importance of good value. Um, the duty-free industry started at Shannon Airport in 1947. It was founded by a gentleman called Dr. Brendan O'Regan. And he got permission from the Irish government to sell products at the airport to departing passengers without charging duty and tax and so on. And in the early days in Shannon, many airports around the world sent delegations to Shannon to understand how it worked. And that happened here as well. Mr. Benendi and a, an American consultant called John Reed came to Shannon Airport to see and understand what the Jersey Free meant. I had visited Dubai on the request of Erie prior to that and met Mr. Benendi. But then they came to Shannon and had discussion, and that had with many duty-free operators around the world. People from Amsterdam used to come, people from Charles de Gaulle used to come and learn what the duty-free meant. Um, and so when we started here as well, we just had to identify and promote the fact that it was duty-free and what it meant to our customers. And a thing right through the duty-free business, a big measurement that's done is what we call sale per head. And um, Dubai Duty Free has evolved into be the top sales per head in the duty free industry worldwide. And it has also evolved to become the largest duty free at a single airport in the world. But of course, the traffic, traffic yeah. going up and up is a very important factor. If you were to describe, I suppose, based people who wouldn't work in the industry would, would interpret duty free as just products without the, the duty attached to it but it's a lot more than that is it is that kind of the nuts and bolts of, of what the duty free well that's where it started but of course in nowadays the operations of duty free have to be sophisticated they have to learn how to promote things have to learn how to display things 
have to select the best merchandise and what to do. Um, and it's, and, and you know, have a good sort of PR activity for the airport. Staff have to be well trained. We have in-house training programs here all the time for new staff and for staff to get into higher positions. Um, and that has to be learned. It's, it's not just there. It has to be done, you know. And um, how much of your time is spent in planning special displays and featuring special things for certain days throughout the, throughout the year. Um, and I, we had big promotions for Women's Day, which is just gone. And Women's Day promotions are lobbies, if you like, started 100 years ago in New York, Shane was telling me. Um, and to, to support the events, Chinese New Year is something we do all the time. National Day in Dubai is something we promote all the time. So these things you learn and you improve as you go on. Was there ever a moment that you questioned your decision not to pursue a career in dentistry? Never a moment. No? I, the only, I had many moments, which was thankful. Um, and that was just the, the family feeling that I'd go and study dentistry, but I ended up never going back to university at all. And I, to be honest, I had not regretted a moment of it. For, for a man, with what you've achieved is, is absolutely incredible and, and remarkable. And the fact you're, you're still so humble and, and down to earth is, makes me, make, to me, makes even more um, amazing. What keeps you motivated? What keeps you going? Well, I love to see, I love to see success. You know, not for me personally, but I love to see our business succeeding. I love when I read about the duty-free being very successful. I like when we do new things. And, for example, my chairman, he's had a shake on inside I make do. If I need to run something by him, he's always available to listen. He's always quick at a decision. And um, which is the reasons why we own tennis tournaments. It's the reason why we sponsor golf tournaments. It's the reason why, why we built the tennis stadium. It's the reason why we built the Irish villages. It's the reason why we built our own hotel. And, you know, our, our business, the Duty Free, has spread out. And, and we don't make a big thing about it, but our, our Irish villages are very successful. Mm-hmm. Our hotel is very successful, often it's a rate of 86 or 7%. And, you know, I love that we can do those new things. I love, the ex- I love relishing the extent of and media coverage that the events we do generate. Um, for example, the tennis tournament which we've just finished and the men's tournament was 31 years ago. Um, that has grown into be a world-class event. We get all the best players in the world come and pay it, but the media value for that, if we were to buy it each year, is valued at about one and a half billion US dollars. And when we see that figure and we have it assessed properly and professionally, I'm very happy about it. And on that note, would you have made decision or would you have made decision as a, as a, as a company then to invest in like the uh, Dubai, obviously the tennis, which you just spoke about, but to invest in the um, Irish Open at the time, was, was that kind of the same reason? Same reasoning. Yeah. And we set a budget at the beginning of the year and we dedicate a percentage of our top line that we will spend on promoting. And included in that promoting is any sponsorship we do, 
any newspaper media we buy, you know, advertising and other promotional things we do. And we watch that budget. We don't pass it. We have a budget at the beginning of the year. We have an in-house marketing department which Sinead operates. Um, and we measure everything we do, but it's that sort of attitude that would have got us. We have been sponsoring horse racing at Newbury in England for 26 years. We have been the main sponsor of the Dubai Duty Free Irish Derby for 16 years, but we've been actually going to the Curra for more than 20 years sponsoring horse racing. And our experience there, when the opportunity came to have the Irish Derby as the Dubai Duty Free Irish Derby, told us it's a good thing to do. And it has proven to be good, you know. And how did you kind of tailor those initial conversations with the powers that be to invest in, in an event in Ireland, you know, back in the day? Well, in the same way, as I said, we had a special um, the percentage of our top line. And um, if we're going to do something new, I would speak to my chairman about it and we'd say yes or not. Brilliant. Because it's definitely brought those uh, those tournaments on leaps and bounds. Uh, yeah, they've done it. We're we're attributed with having saved the Irish golf, to be honest, because it was at a very low wave when we took it on, and um, it was hosted that time by uh, Rory McIlroy, and he was very big and new and good, and um, he, and he was very good at doing it, and um, we met he and I and Sinead and and his manager, Sean, and then we discussed it. And there was sort of a joint decision, if you like, but and we were the sponsor and Rory was the host in the first year we did it, and it worked very well. Brilliant, brilliant. Throughout your career, you've come across incredibly successful people, um, athletes and obviously business people as well. If you had to summarize it, do you think they all have a general you know, a team or they might have something in common? I think, um, you know, a lot of the people I've met are not just in business to become millionaires. A lot of the people I've met have an, an attitude of minding people, and I've learned a lot from them, of doing something good for their country, not just for themselves. And, you know, I like that in, in somebody, and when you, when you bump into somebody like that and you start talking, it soon comes out what their attitude is. Um, and most of the people I've met have a great respect for the workers, and I think that's important. And um, as I said, most people I've met that I like very much have an equal, an equal respect for men and women. Um, and I'm happy to keep always. We have six senior managers, vice presidents in Dubai Duty Free, three more ladies and three more men. Um, as a general rule, our Total staff in the Dubai Duty Free operation is roughly 50-50 men and women. And I've met, uh, you asked me a question about people. I've, I've noticed that and learned from it of successful people I've met that treat everybody equally and with respect. Would there have been kind of um, a person you would have looked up to or, or kind of benchmarked how you would run things throughout your career? I'd say there was nobody in particular that I said, but um, I think I learned a lot from various people I met, you know. One one thing I like from the conversations we're having now and the conversation we had before, I listened to podcasts and into interviews you've done, you're always using the term we, not I. Um, and as 
you know, it's probably natural for you, but a lot of people, you know, fall into the trap of, of referring to I all the time, whether it's their own business or someone else's business. Is that something that's very important to you, that it's it's not just you, it's, it's the team around you? Uh, that is important, and um, <clears throat> I'm not saying I developed the we word purposely, and it was just natural for me to talk about we rather than I. Um, you know, I sometimes would say I was the captain of the Amherst Golf Club, or I was the captain of the Greek Golf Club, and I'd only say that because it's true, and it has to be a we, and that's has to be an I in that situation. Well, fair enough, and they do it. In, um, in our business and our work, I see it very much as a we. Brilliant, because I, I, unfortunately, I've came across people that always refer to I, and it's kind of a very forgetting about everyone else in the in the company, which that's one thing I, I'd like to just touch on. Think it's, 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 we, have, um, we have a management committee in the Dubai Disney Freight, which we call the Dream Team. And um, all of us on that Dream Team refer to us as we, we, we. And I'm delighted that's kind of second nature to us. It's not an instruction, it's just efforts. Brilliant, brilliant. So when you're... Yeah, before we come to the end, what do you think makes Dubai duty-free one of the best, or if not the best, duty-free in the world? Well, I think our marketing is very important. Um, and I, of course, have to recognize the fact that the traffic through our history has gone up. Um, in 2000 and in 1984, we started, we opened the duty-free on the 20th of December 1983. In 1984, the traffic through Dubai Airport was just under 4 million passengers. In 2019, the traffic was 89 million passengers. And our business has grown, of course, because of that, so we cannot ignore for a minute. Our business wouldn't be there if we didn't have traffic. Then I think added to that is the effort of all our staff, the promotion of our business, the genuine value we offer people and and the service that customers get. And I think that's what's very important. And uh, we preach that in the jury wheel all the time. Someone told me before it costs nothing to be nice. And it costs nothing to be nice. What advice would you give to you know, new Irish people coming to Dubai or even new people in general coming out to Dubai? I'd say work honestly um, is the first thing. A respect for people, and I'm saying the next sentence because it's current. Um, yesterday was Women's Day, and um, people treat them equally, treat nationalities equally, um, and uh, obey the rules, you know. When you're building a team around you, what are the qualities do you do you look out for in people? Like, what are the main things that that you 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 that draws you into the person? Well, naturally, if you're looking at somebody new, you look at their background, um, what kind of work they've done in the past, what attributes they have that you can see or learn or read about. Um, and then when you're working with somebody, um, not just in the recruitment side of it, but when you're working day in, day out with a team of people, you begin to see what certain things people shine at and you begin to see what people, what certain things you think they're shy at, and you try and um, change them and advise them. And together, it's not. I don't ever see it as preaching. 
I see it very much together working at something that will improve the situation. I ask this to all my guests, so don't take it the wrong way, but do you have a morning routine? Uh, yeah. <laughs> when I get up at 530, that's the usual routine. I have a, a, a cup of tea, a piece of bread and one banana. And then I come to the office by 7.30. And, you know, you have a lot of meetings that you go on. Uh, One very routine thing is every Wednesday we have what we call a dream team meeting. And each of the people on that, um, nine of us, each of the people on that, we go around the table and any good ideas and new ideas, we look at them and study them. But that I would call a weekly routine. When you've come, when you've came to Dubai, when was that point that you decided, look, I'm going to stay here? Because obviously when people come to Dubai, they're always like, I'll give it a year, I'll give it a year, I'll give it a year. And before they realize it, they're here for 10 years or they're here for 20 years. Yeah. Well, I, I'm in the same boat. As I said, I agreed that I would come for two years. And um, that just came and went. I, I was never waiting to say Oh, I'll go for three years. I'll go for four years. Um, I got great freedom from my superiors in Dubai. And it was a big boost for me, of course, the fact that the Dubai Duty Free was successful. Um, so that there was, no, there was no time when I was questioning if I would stay or not. It just went on and on and on. And um, as I said, it's now 39 years. Um, I avoid as much as I can saying what age I was when I first came here. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you mentioned something around about the Irish villages, um, and it's quite interesting that there's a banister of post office in there, isn't there? <laughs> that ain't to do with you. <laughs> it was funny we when we built the Irish village, and uh, when we built the stadium. I got approval from Sheikh Ahmed to put an Irish pub under the stadium. And then we engaged an Irish company called McNally to come and do the design for us. And and we wanted, if we were doing an Irish pub, we just didn't see it as just a pub. We said we wanted to promote the Irish thing. Um, So we did that as a, a little street, a village in Ireland, the outside of the pub. Um. We recruited Irish staff right at the beginning. Somebody I had working here with me went to Ireland and did some interviews. Um, and the Mandelisle Post Office just brought a little bit of omnibus to it, you know. And we brought lorry loads of the scanner slab stones, which is outside. Brickwork came from Dublin. We wanted to make it all Irish. The furnishing was all come from Ireland. That's in the first Irish village you had there. Did you, at the time, did you have any struggle or kickback or questions about opening the, the pub in, in Dubai from the powers that be? Was there any? No, we got full support from, um, you know, from early days. Um, the boss of the airport at that time, I said, it was Mr. Benendi and Sheikh Abbott was the chairman. From the very early days, we had full support. And if we're doing something new, I would always go to Sheikh Ahmed and say that we had this idea, what do you think of it? And, and he would say yes or no. Do you have a motto that you live by, a motto or a saying that you live by? 
Um, well, I just like to work hard. I like to, um, I have to say it myself, but I like to be honest. And uh, I like to treat people equally. Where we have people reporting to me, um, you know, I don't be banging the table, I think, and saying, listen to me, I'm the boss. I like to debate it out and treat people. Treat people like I like to be treated myself. Brilliant, brilliant. On that note, we'll uh, we'll wrap it up, Colin. First of all, and and la- sorry, lastly, thanks very much for taking time out to come on inside of your podcast and best of luck with the forties, forty year of the Boy Duty Free. Well, Jamie, thank you very much indeed, and I'm delighted once again to repeat: the Boy Duty Free has won seven hundred and fifty-eight awards. In its time, and many times it has been voted the best in the world. Um, many of those, a number of those awards, undeservedly were economy lofted, and it's a nice feeling, you know. Um, and I enjoyed many other things in Dubai. I, I played golf for years. I was one of the first members of the Emirates Golf Club. I was the captain of the Emirates Golf Club in '95, '96. I was the captain of the Creek Golf Club in 2007. I played squash here and won several tournaments. Um, but I, now I'm spoofing. I did win some tournaments, but I liked things I was able to do here. It just popped to my mind there. Uh, you were a tour guide on one occasion for a group of people that came to Dubai many, many moons ago, and there was all all sand, and you ended up basically trying to kill time. Uh, yeah, we, we started, we being Dubai Jersey Free, several years ago, a golf tournament, which we called the Dubai Jersey Free Golf World Cup. And we invited people from the duty-free industry all around the world to come and participate. And the first year we had 14 people. And we had them staying in the Meridian Hotel across at the airport, which was the Dubai International Hotel at that time. And we hired a bus to bring them from there to the Emirates Golf Club. And I acted as a tour guide on the bus. And I explained to them as they were coming, as we were driving by, now this is the Trade Center, and it's the tallest building in the Middle East. And this is the Metropolitan Hotel, and it's one of the most famous hotels in Dubai. And there is a very nice English pub in there called the Red Lion. And that's all I had to say until I got to the Emirates Golf Club, because there was, there was no other buildings. I had to make up things and tell them a little bit about Dubai and the history in the Emirates, which was fine, and how the seven Emirates got together and so on. And um, that tournament has now grown because up to that time we used to play golf in Dubai on sand and Emirates Golf Club was new. Um, and of course, Dubai has grown, as you know, but there are 10 or 12 world-class grass golf courses in Dubai. And the tournament, we still do it. I think it's 29 years. We, we still do it every year. And now we have about 90 overseas visitors that come every year and participate from various countries in the jewelry industry. Brilliant, brilliant, friends. Well, uh, we'll wrap it up, Colin. Thanks very much. Jamie, thank you for your time, and I hope you've enjoyed it. That is all from us on this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Colin. We'll ask you to rate, review, and tell your friends, family about the podcast, and be sure to click subscribe if you haven't done so already. It makes a huge difference, and we really, really appreciate it. Be sure to follow us too on social media. We're available across all social media platforms. Have a lovely week and be sure to tune in again next week when we have another exciting guest. Till then, stay safe and remember, cred on it fan. Talk to you all soon and thank you all for listening.